This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time. Our guest today on Campus Voices as part of the series we are doing on futures of the mass media industry is Dion Searcy, who is a 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for international reporting as part of the team for the New York Times, for which she writes. She's also the author of a book called In Pursuit of Disobedient Women, and formerly worked as the U.S. politics reporter and the West Africa bureau chief for the Times, covering, among other things, social, political, economic issues for a number of countries in West and Central Africa, with a focus on Nigeria's war against Boko Haram. She joined the Times in 2014 as an economics writer, writing for a series of stories about the changing middle class in America. She also worked for the New York uh, for the Wall Street Journal, where she was an investigative reporter covering national legal affairs and the telecom industry. Also has worked for Newsday, the State House and Education Beats for the Seattle Times, covered crime and criminal courts for the Chicago Tribune and the News City Bureau of Chicago. She is a native of Wymore, Nebraska, and a proud 1993 graduate of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UNL, where she majored in what we at that time called news editorial, which has now changed its name officially, I guess, to journalism. But uh, you were a proud news editor, and we're delighted to have you join us for this series, John. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Describe, if you would, just a sort of set up before we get to the future part of things, what it was that attracted you to the journalism side of the or the educational ledger when you came to the university in around 1990 or so? Well, um, I think when I came to the university, um, I got advice from my brother, who's a photojournalist, and he said, whatever you do, work at the campus newspaper. And um, I thought it was pretty fun working at the Daily Nebraskan, and I figured if I liked it, I might as well just join the journalism program and major in journalism. So it was really um, based on the the advice of my brother that I that I got into it. I, I think you owe him one for uh, for the, <laughs> making that excellent suggestion that's led to a whole career following that advice. What do you remember about uh, what do you remember about your time in the College of Journalism? What still resonates with you about your years here? Well, I think I remember just how much fun it was. Um, really, I mean, that's that's the best thing about journalism. It's just a ton of fun. I mean, you can tackle serious issues and and um, really, you know, world changing things. But it's also really fun to get to meet all sorts of different kinds of people and um, and and write and learn about new things. But at the college, you know, the biggest part of fun were the professors that I had. I worked with um, Dick Streckfuss and Bud Pagel, who are now both gone, but um, they were really influential in, I think, showing all of us just how much fun the profession could be and um, not taking yourself too seriously, but learning from your mistakes and taking those very seriously um, and showing us how to pick ourselves up and, and kind of dust off and and move on. And um, I really love that. I love learning from them. Did you have the class with Dick and Bud where they talked about the uh, Paul Revere lead? Do you remember that from their class? <laughs> I, I do remember that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they taught me how to write. So um, Isn't that interesting how those memories stay with you even uh, the decades later? So that I think it absolutely. worked in your case, clearly. But yeah. you had, as you mentioned, a great experience with the Daily Nebraskan. What was, what was that like? 
Well, I, I worked in all kinds of different positions um, there. I was never in the editor in chief, but I was, um, you know, I was a copy editor. I edited one of the feature sections. I I was a night news editor, um, had the stress of like having to, you know, get the get the newspaper to the printer back in the day and um, driving it across over to, I think it, we went somewhere near East Campus to get it printed and always, you know, we'd have these nightmares that you wake up the next morning and it's still in the back of your car. Um, but fortunately, that never happened. But I loved it. I think my favorite job, though, was my last job, which was senior reporter. And um, that really showed me that, um, you know, a career path, I guess, really. And um, the journalism school is also very, very good about placing us in internships. Um, and that was also really essential for me is getting to work in a real newsroom and helping us, you know, with that, um, with that pathway. Now, you, as mentioned earlier, have worked through a variety of stellar news organizations in your life. Uh, but I want to focus a little bit on your time in West Africa. I, too, have had a chance to spend some time there teaching in Eastern Africa at the University of Addis Ababa several years ago, uh, taught our intro class there. And I have told anybody that's ever been willing to listen to me that being in Africa is a life-changing event. You spent quite a bit of time in West and Central Africa. What was it that led to that posting there? Well, um, mostly it was just the idea of working overseas. And um, again, I, I there was an editor here at the Times who I heard speak at a Pulitzer um, award ceremony who just was was so enthusiastic. Um, I had been at the Times about a year and just heard him and the way he talked about the coverage and um, how how he uh, viewed you know our our role, I guess the New York Times role in um, African coverage and. I was really swayed and I just thought to myself, I really want to work for him. And so that was one thing that I pursued um, pretty directly um, as far as West Africa is, is concerned. I'd also was a double major in French at the University of Nebraska. So I had that background um, to help me out a little bit um, with, with that position because most of the countries I was covering were Francophone. So um, there was even a professor in the French department who uh, ended up being a, a real help to me on some stories that I was working on in the Democratic Republic of Congo, of all things. Um, so just just recently. So uh, I think that um, being, you know, being in uh, being in a, the role of a foreign correspondent was just something I was really intrigued by. I'd done a lot of beats and really wanted to try it. And um, it was great. I loved it. You spent a good amount of that time covering Nigeria's war against the Boko Haram movement. Um, for those folks who may, that, that may seem in the distant past to them, remind some of our, our listeners what the, the genesis was of that, of that conflict. Sure. Um, that started out like a lot of conflicts happened. Um, it's just kind of a, a, a war on inequality and um, government corruption, um, which we see time and again all over the world. And it involved a band of Islamist extremists who um, started out just being pretty unhappy about, uh, you know, the the money that was they saw stolen by corrupt um, government officials and um, escalated into violence. But um, you might know a little bit about that conflict based on uh, the these set of girls, schoolgirls called the Chibot Girls. Um, Michelle Obama was pretty influential in, um, uh, I guess, one of the first big hashtag, you know, kind of online campaigns, bring back our girls. And so um, I spent a lot of time writing about other women and girls who were um, part of that conflict and, and victims and just how they 
how they uh, kind of grew to be heroes um, of of that conflict and 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 had real agency to change their situations. While the girls were the focus of a lot of the attention, they were not the only victims of atrocities, particularly against younger people at that time, correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, one thing that we forget is before those girls were kidnapped, um, there was a group of schoolboys um, who were actually burned to death. Um, so there were many, many, many atrocities um, in that war that's still playing out a little bit and just in all kinds of ways, old people, young people, and a whole region just upended in that conflict. For people who are were in this country and only heard about Boko Haram because of the reporting of folks like yourself, uh, and we we tend for those stories that we have trouble getting our arms around to sort of rely on bumper sticker kinds of thoughts about what happened in that case. But you made a point earlier that I want to stress, which is that that was the genesis of that was sort of a time honored uh, set of conflicts between haves and have nots that you say has played out several other places around the world forever. But we're seeing that certainly again in the current geopolitical situations, are we not? That the same sort of, the seeds of the same sort of conflict exist currently other places. Absolutely. It occurs, it occurs all over and it occurs, you know, in our own country, when you look at uh, sort of the, the war on billionaires and, and those who don't have, you know, as, as much money and um, opportunities. I mean, we see that play out in I used to think about um, the debate in Nebraska. We talk a lot about outstate, right, and how uh, Lincoln and Omaha get all the gets all the funding, and that plays out in a lot of a lot of states in America too. But when you just even think of that term, outstate, it's so demeaning to people, you know, who who don't live um, in one of the cities in Nebraska. And you know, in the in the Boko Haram conflict, I used to also think of the town that was kind of the hub of that. It was a university town. It was kind of the Lincoln of Nigeria, you know, and and um, it was a lot of similarities, oddly, um, in terms of a farming community and just different things that um, people were dealing with there. I think, you know, growing up in in the middle of a country that doesn't often think about the middle of its country um, was pretty good training for working in a continent where not very many Americans think about, you know, things that go on there. So Well, and you found some parallels there between uh, your home state and the place where you were posted. And, and looking through some of your articles here recently, I've noticed that you've done some work on the precious metal stories in Africa, but also on how that affects our home state. Yeah, for sure. I, I was fortunate enough to um, go to Elk Creek recently, um, the end of last year, and write a bit about uh, Hunt for precious metals in the renewables um, industry that are going to be kind of transforming how we live. And it was great because everything played out um, for that story in a town that was just a few miles away from where I grew up, just a handful of miles away from where I got married, even um, in, in the southeast part of the state. And even, uh, you know, some distant cousins um, were milling around. And so it was it was pretty fun to go back and um, see my home home community, my home area, I guess, through a different lens. Well, you've helped us all uh, learn about the the stories and the, the, the situations going on in Africa. But what what did that that experience covering that bureau and the, the 25 different countries that you were part of? What did you learn about yourself in that process? I think what I learned um, mostly about, I guess, my myself through my career wise really was how to, you know, as journalists, 
I think sometimes we're taught uh, we have to be very objective, of course, and, um, you know, that that sometimes plays out in these cold ways, but you don't need to be so cold in your coverage. Um, you can really learn to channel your empathy to help guide your reporting and add nuance to your reporting and to really dig into the gray areas of a story so things aren't so black and white. Um, even, even writing about, you know, extremists, you know, here's just, just this knowledge that they're doing this because it started out because of a war on inequality and corruption. Um, that to me, I think was very helpful to keep in mind. So I really think it helped me dig through the layers, I guess, a little bit more um, going overseas and doing that kind of work. Context is always so important. We hear about an individual or a situation and think, well, that's terrible, but there are reasons behind why those those people have taken their sometimes terrible actions. You also met and, and became inspired, I know, by a lot of the, the women that you met during that journey there. And that's what led to the publication of your book in 2020 called The Pursuit in Pursuit of Disobedient Women. I love that title. Uh, <laughs> okay. Tell us about how that how that came about. Well, um, that came about uh, from a publishing perspective, I guess. I had written a story about moving my family, my young three young kids and my husband to Dakar um, and to take on, that's a, the capital of Senegal in West Africa and where we lived for four, about four years. And I wrote a kind of personal story about what it's like to suddenly become the breadwinner um, in, in your family and to move your kids and to, you know, leave your cushy, I guess, uh, I live in Brooklyn, um, and leave your cushy American life and, and move somewhere totally new. And so uh, I had also been covering women um, in the economy and how in the American economy, how a lot of women were dropping out of the workforce. Um, to take care of, you know, their kids or their parents. And, and so it just, it struck me when, when I wrote that story, I started getting a lot of calls from agents like, oh, you should write a book about, you know, these kinds of things. So I thought that maybe using um, myself, it's a, it's a memoir, um, using myself as a vehicle through which to tell other women's stories in dramatically different circumstances, but how they have also, um, you know, faced sort of this outside pressure, just looking at, um, looking at them and giving people a more, accessible, I guess, um, entree to a part of the world that they don't think about very much. With that background, let's take a, a shift gears a little bit and talk about the future of our respective industries mm -hmm. and yours, particularly with uh, an organization like the Times. How have you seen the, the journalism field and the industry change since you started in it after graduating from the university in 93? Well, it's changed pretty dramatically, really. I mean, a lot of some of the newspapers and news organizations where I've worked don't exist anymore. I mean, I think that is the biggest change that we've seen is this dramatic shrinkage in um, just newspapers, American newspapers in general. And um, for me, you know, I, when I was in West Africa in particular, but even in New York, like younger journalists will come through and want to get coffee and talk to me about, you know, how can I get to, you know, the New York Times or what was your pathway? Um, what was your career, you know, roadmap for me? And really, I don't know what to tell them sometimes because there are so few um, 
opportunities, you know, that they have. I worked my way up through a raft of local um, newspapers from bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, those and did internships and, um, you know, the local newspapers don't exist as much anymore. And if they do, they might be on a shoestring budget. Um, I'm not sure even how many internship opportunities there are anymore, let alone paid internships. I was lucky enough to always have a paid internship. Um, so I think there's a huge shrinkage just in opportunities generally, but I am heartened, you know, by new publications like um, the Flatwater Free Press and the Nebraska Examiner and other places um, in, in Nebraska in particular, but ProPublica, which is an online investigative um, news site, they have, they're opening up regional bureaus. So, I mean, opportunities are coming, but in general, I think the biggest change that I've seen is just this, just, you know, torpedoing of journalism really that's come from um, a reduction in advertising and and all the other you know financial forces so how do you see these two different groups melding together a little bit the kind of traditional mainstream storied place like the one you work for with the New York Times and these sort of upstart publicly or not publicly but uh uh non-profit non-profit really. that's yeah. thank yeah. you that was the word i was yeah. looking for like like flatwater and the examiner what do, how do these two coexist and co-mingle in the in the future as you as you see it well you know i'm not quite sure how it's going to play out but i know that one thing the new york times is really invested in is um, our former editor dean Baquet has started a local news operation where he's an investigative operation where he's going to be partnering with more local newspapers to give them um, resources, editing resources, and otherwise um, for producing big investigations that can be really meaningful and have huge impact in a community. And as far as, you know, I, I think there's room for, I mean, the New York Times is in a really good place um, financially in the American journalism landscape right now, but there's definitely room for um, other newspapers. And the fact is, is we can have, you know, a huge national staff of reporters, but we just don't have someone in every community. Obviously, there's still such a huge and important role for um, local journalism. And so my hope is that more sites like these, you know, pop up and that um, they get enough traction and funding in smaller communities and um, across the country so that um, there, people can be held accountable because that's, you know, a huge part of journalism. Of course. And I think one mistake that we make sometimes is in saying, well, there are fewer daily newspapers than there used to be. There are smaller radio and television news staffs than there used to be. That must mean nobody's interested in news. And that's that's a fallacy. That's not that's not true at all. If people are spending so much time researching or looking, I don't say they're researching, but they're looking at news, but just from perhaps in different ways and on different platforms. So there's clearly still an interest in it. So I think the challenge is how do we reach these people where they are? That's exactly right. And I think it's something, you know, that if you've seen the Washington Post has a TikTok feed now, I think we do, or we're about to, I'm not on TikTok, um, <laughs> because I spent most of my days telling my kids to get off TikTok. But, um, but you know, I think that we are trying to figure that out um, at the big newspapers, too, of how to better integrate social media. We have a Instagram stories, we have, you know, our Twitter feed, we have all kinds of, you know, our, our news operation in general has has been transformed to be um, on think about online first. And my guess is, you know, we won't have a print newspaper in, you know, 10, 15 years. I, I mean, I don't know, but 
I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you think about the cost it um, takes to operate one of those giant facilities where the newspaper, you know, gets spit out. I, I just, what a savings, <laughs> you know, once the, once the advertising um, revenue dries up from that and subscribership goes down enough, I think that um, that'll be gone too. Well, and you have an absolutely world-class podcast, one of the best in the world. Whenever we talk about podcast, uh, podcast, the daily always is one of the first ones out of our mouths. So uh, the the paper is to be, uh, the organization is to be lauded for having seen the value in that early and in investing the number of folks and resources that are being used uh, to put it together. It's really an outstanding audio example of how to move into that into that sphere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's such a um, treat, I guess, uh, to, to work at a newspaper that has so many options for your work, um, so many platforms for your work. You know, I've been on the daily a few times. I have, you know, created Instagram stories. I've, you know, it, I mean, there are stories of mine that have, you know, just had massive, massive resources. We still are one of the only newspapers left to really invest in photojournalism, which I think has also historically been a huge, important part of the um, of the School of Journalism at UNL. And I think that uh, the resources that we can devote to a single topic in, you know, sliced and diced in a million different ways and put out to the public is is just incredible. And that helps us reach our audience. And I hope that, um, you know, sometimes other news organizations learn from us and sometimes we fail with these new efforts. But, um, you know, I think that management has typically been here, like, let's kind of throw it all out there and see what works and really willing to experiment and fail. And that's important. At least you're trying, you know, you're, you're yeah. trying to, to meet the audience where they are. And I, you'll be happy to hear that the photojournalism program is very much alive and well. Thank you very much. We're just getting ready at the end of this week to send a group of students with two of our best journalism faculty members to Vietnam as part of the Global Eyewitness Program that we've done for over a couple of decades here now at the program. So, yeah, it's it's up and running. What do you think are some of the biggest forces driving all this change in your field and, and how do you think the field is prepared to deal with them? Well, I think, you know, maybe attention span of, of young people, I think, is one one issue that we're going to have to grapple with. Um, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal and and probably is even true for the Times, you know, I, the readership, a average age of readers was something like, you know, 60, <laughs> not really, but you know, it's a pretty, pretty old age um, for, for a lot of readers of mainstream newspapers and, and news organizations. And I think we're really going to have to adapt to um, how young people consume news. As, as you said earlier, I mean, it, it stories here, we're focusing on getting our story links down um, on a lot of, a lot of um, different parts of the paper, um, because people just don't have that kind of attention span. Um, there's all kinds of pressure from, from Facebook and, you know, other, other kinds of sites like that, where we've tried partnerships with, but maybe we're competing with, and, you know, everyone's really trying to figure, figure it all out. And, and for TV news, I think they, you know, there there are huge issues there too that I'm less familiar with, but I know they're, you know, everyone is just trying to figure things out. And radio, um, at, at, on every format, even photojournalists, the pressures are different now, and and how they produce and how they have to, you know, 
be ready to send their stories and find a connection when you're out in the boonies, you know, to, to send your, your photos right away so they can appear on the homepage of a newspaper. So everybody's sorting it out and their pressures from all over, especially when you look at, um, you know, fake news and disinformation and trying to remain credible. I mean, that's a huge, huge threat and a huge challenge and a huge opportunity too. Now with AI and chat GPT, who knows what's, uh, if what you're seeing was really generated by a human or by a bot. So Yeah, terrifying, right? Well, it's interesting, you, as you mentioned, the, the where the news is, has forced us to change how we do things too. I mean, and we've gotten to the point where from the time we moved into this building in 2001, and we had a newsroom that was filled with people every day until we realized the news doesn't happen in the newsroom. The news happens out in the field. And now we yeah. have the tools and the technologies to be able to go where the news is and send it back from there. And suddenly the newsroom itself became a lot quieter. I don't know if that's your experience with the times, but uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, you know, COVID has something to do with that, too, I yeah. think. And so people are really comfortable with um, working from home, too. I was just walking around the newsroom today, and it's today's a, a big day where a lot of people come in and it's still pretty empty. So, you know, I think that'll change a little bit, too. Um, but but it's just a, the whole dynamic has changed, really. Because I'm one of the faculty members in our college that teaches our required ethics course, which you also would have taken when you were here. It was called Mass Media and Society when you were here. We now call it uh, Media Ethics and Society. I'm always curious to get the take on what kinds of ethical challenges you see facing the folks in your industries moving forward. You know, I think the ethical challenges are still kind of the same. You know, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I see. uh I guess huh, this is a hard question. I'm trying to think. I mean, it's the same old stuff, right? You 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 don't take gifts from people. You you know, it, it's very. I don't really see that changing. What do you see? What do you teach? I'm curious now. What well, I, I think you're right that things like the SPJ Code of Ethics, which we teach in the class, I think I've got either nine or ten different codes of ethics on my <laughs> uh, online site for the class. Um, but yes, and we just had a session in the class earlier this week, a student produced session about uh, when you have to have the, the kind of separation that you have to have as a journalist from your sources, um, or, or if, if you're working in the advertising PR side with your client, that there's a certain amount of rapport you have to build in order to get good leads and get good uh, contacts and inside information, but you can't get too cozy with these folks. Otherwise that affects your reporting as well, or it affects the relationship with your client when you're no longer comfortable speaking truth to power to a, to a client and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't think that. No, I, I go, do go think, I will say, yeah, I will say that uh, one thing I think that a lot of newspapers right now, including us are, are grappling with is a younger generation that sees themselves as activists, um, activist journalists, Sort of, and I think that is, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of European newspapers are, are kind of that way, and that's not really how American journalism has been. And so that's become, you know, probably one of the trickier um, things to sort out for, you know, older journalists um, like myself and and a lot of the managers seeing this new class of kind of Gen Z, I guess, and millennial journalists um, who who really think of themselves as, um, you know, more than journalists, a little more, they bend a little more toward activism. And that's been, um, you know, hard to uh, 
to, to deal with. I'm, I'm very old school in my thinking about it. <laughs> so, so, um, you Me know, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as you say, a lot of the European countries have been very happy historically having uh, left-leaning news organizations and right-leaning news organizations. We've come to that more recently with cable news channels in particular, right. but social media and websites have certainly ratcheted that, that opportunity to live in that bubble or that echo chamber and never get any information from opposing forces. I know folks who this week have been saying, wait a minute, there's some charges against the Biden family and some people earlier this week who were saying, wait a minute, Trump has been on trial. That's because they're, yeah. the sources they're, that they're reading and listening to yeah. aren't talking about the things that yeah. perhaps are less uh, flattering toward the candidates or the, the sources or the causes that they find value in. That's exactly right. I mean, how polarization will shape um, journalism is, is, I guess, yet to be seen, but um, hopefully not too much. Hopefully we can still kind of stay the course. Well, so based on that, since we've been kind of on some of the negatives here, where do you think are the are the growth areas in your field when you when people talk to you about the future? What do you where do you think the the uh, the positive side of the ledger sides are? Boy, I just still think that people want to read long stories. Um, I you know maybe not all the time, but some of the time, and I think that um, there's so much opportunity to do great investigative work. I mean, there's so many changes going on around us in, in politics. And, you know, I, I right now write a lot about climate change and those uh, environmental issues. I think, you know, our world is really changing and there's so, so much journalism <laughs> to be done and, and good work um, to explore. And I think, you know, I, I think that investigative journalism is still going to um, be valued by Americans in whatever form it comes in. And I think we just have to figure out how to present it. And um, and, and that's important. And we'll, we'll get it at some point. We'll get it right. <laughs> I think we tend to say in our classes that not only is uh, journalism still important in what seems to be a time of diminishing mainstream sources, but that perhaps it is the most important it's ever been in, in preserving yeah. our democracy and in, and in preserving the the, uh, the things that we all hold dear. So given that, what kinds of skills do you think the potential employees of the future need, both the students in our college, but just folks that are thinking about getting into the business? And I just still think the basics, you know, um, cover, I, I think everything I ever uh, needed to know about covering a story, I learned by covering um, the regents, the board of regents. <laughs> that was my beat for a while at the Daily Nebraska. And, you know, there was corruption and officials who had no idea what they were talking about and officials who were brilliant and long meetings and, you know, uh, activists who would come and, you know, protesters, that kind of thing. And, and just covering those, having a real, as far as newspaper or news reporting goes, just having a beat um, covering an institution and everything around it, you know, writing profiles about that institution and features um, and breaking news. And you really get, um, whether it's City Hall that you're covering or, you know, the Board of Regents or a university as a whole or or the state legislature. I mean, that that to me, I just think is so crucial to get those kind of real building blocks before you move on to um, bigger and better things. Aside from just those basic repertorial skills, are there uh, traits that you feel are beneficial to anybody in the new economy and in the future that just everybody, regardless of whether it's journalism or not, that they should try to improve? I mean, I, I think like 
growing up in Nebraska, I wasn't really taught to be very curious, <laughs> I think, in my small town. And I think that that's one thing that reporters just have to really tap their curiosity about the world. Um, no matter what what format you know, you're reporting in or um, what the future holds, you just have to have to ask the questions and 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 be curious about the world around you and how things work and how how you know what is your role in the world and how I, I really like you know being from Nebraska and and you're almost a curiosity once you get on the coast if you're if you're from here and I, I like um sort of really using my uh my experience growing up in a small town as as a translator between those worlds and i think that that's still a really valuable skill for everybody you know who's coming through um the university to whether you leave or or stay in nebraska um that's just being curious and really understanding you know where you are where you're from and where you're at i think is really valuable just expressed curiosity in an individual conference I had with a student about two hours ago. So oh. yes, I would absolutely <laughs> concur with you on that one. Yeah. Since you mentioned the pandemic a little bit earlier, what uh, and, and that sort of collision with the Gen Z population that's coming through the universities now who are more purpose-driven, you mentioned you used the term activist, I would agree with that as well. One of the things that they seem to be more concerned about, and, and the, the pandemic ratcheted that up, was the work-life balance mm -hmm. and not necessarily as we saw in the great resignation that followed the pandemic, maybe not being automatically willing to work forever and ever and ever for something that doesn't resonate with them. How are you seeing that play out with the people that you're seeing come into your newsroom and into your interest areas at this point? Well, I, you know, I see, I, I, I don't have direct experience really with that in the newsroom, but I do know just generally, you know, there, the expectations are, are very different. I think for a reporter starting out versus me who, you know, I was willing to work at any hour and do anything and have, you know, bully bosses and, you know, be yelled at. And I thought that was great training. And I think um, the younger generation isn't willing to put up with that. And, you know, I, I think it really helped make me into the reporter that I was, but I have a lot of respect for um, not putting up with that because we didn't need to put up with that. And especially, you know, that it just, just, how that plays out, um, you know, with gender roles and and with other things that happen right now too. I think it, it's just a whole different set of expectations that when you stop and think about it, is pretty reasonable. But I do think also as a journalist, you know, if you're a reporter, you're kind of on the clock twenty four seven if something arises, um, especially at a news organization like the New York Times where we cover the world. So every time zone, you know, it's always morning somewhere. And so, but we have dealt with that by having um, operations in place in London and in Hong Kong. So we kind of have all the big sections of the day covered um, so that, you know, people are not expected to work 24 seven. And I think that's, that's just a part of that is an outcropping of covering the world. But it's also, you know, just just a generation of people who work isn't everything, you know, I honestly can't imagine thinking that, <laughs> because work is everything to me. Um, But, but I think that um, it's a really healthy outlook. And the pandemic has changed, you know, how we all think about work. And um I, for one, I'm happy to work at home more than I used to. It's it's pretty fun to be there when my my teenagers come home at night and and that sort of thing. It's also not fun sometimes if they're in a bad mood. But um, <laughs> you know, but I think that 
I think that it's overall, it's been a good thing, not just in journalism, but for everywhere, really um, kind of taking a breather um, with how we are just so demanding on ourselves work-wise. From that standpoint, do you see a, a shift at all, either because of the pandemic or one that might have started before the pandemic in, in relying more on freelancers and the gig economy kind of folks, as opposed to a newsroom full of full-timers? I mean, I think that's tough for us because just in terms of our standards, really, and and making sure, I mean, it's really, for, for one thing, I mean, a lot of newsrooms like us have have grappled with social media standards. Um, is a reporter allowed to, uh, you know, tweet their opinion about the president or something like that? I mean, as a reporter, no, absolutely not. As a freelancer, we we tell our freelancers they're not supposed to do that. But I, you know, it's very hard to rein in somebody who's not on the payroll. So for us, that's not a problem because we have the revenue, right? We have um, the, the financial strength where we can employ a lot of people. We do use some freelancers, but you know, most of our copy is written by staff. For other newspapers, yeah, I mean, I would think that would definitely start to happen more and more um, and maybe is a very reasonable financial way to proceed. So when you're at a cocktail party and uh, just at a family gathering and somebody says, oh, you're a reporter. Well, I've always wanted to do that. What kind of uh, what's your response when somebody says, I'd like to do what you do? What do you what do you tell them? And what did, what are there's uh, what possible misconceptions might people have about what you do or why? Well, I think a lot of people think when you say reporter that you're like, you know, knocking on people's doors relentlessly or hounding, you know, counting people and that that kind of thing. That's such a, you know, that that's not really how it works. You know, I, I just was calling, I, I was texting some people, um, a guy in Minnesota yesterday about a story. And I said, you know, would you talk to me about this and that? And he just texted back, nope. And I'm like, okay, thanks for your time. You know, that's, that's all it takes. So that's, if that's hounding, <laughs> you know, I don't think so. But I, I think that what I tell young people is, is, you get out there and do it, you know, start freelancing, work at your campus newspaper or work, you know, go to someplace like the University of Nebraska, where you can get amazing training from amazing professors and um, learn from your peers, just just really get out there and do it, I think is the biggest advice that I have from anybody, because you only learn by doing, I mean, you can sit in a classroom all day, but that means nothing until you get out there and you you, know, you pick up the the phone to make your first phone call, which I, I still, you know, have to kind of steal myself, you know, 20 years on to, to make a phone call or to walk up to somebody I don't know and introduce myself and start talking with them. I, I mean, I, I learned a lot from my grandpa, who was a farmer who would sit in the mall and talk to everybody who went past him at the Indian Creek Mall in Nebraska or in Beatrice. But, you know, that's that's still tough for me. <laughs> so I think that that's that's a skill that you only get more comfortable with by doing it. That was, your grandfather had a great skill. That's that's uh, I really I really admire him for being willing yeah. to do that. So to tie all this together, what's in your future? You've had an amazing career. You've gotten to work in uh, a variety of different settings for a variety of different world class news organizations. Are you comfortable, or what's the future? Do you think in in your case? Oh, I, I I love working at the New York Times. I think there's still, you know, the the New York Times is the kind of place where you can do so many different um, beats. Uh, 
I, I would love, you know, anything would be really fun here. Writing for the arts section, writing for cooking, writing for, you know, anybody. I'd love to go back overseas. I, I don't think I'm done here at all. I think there are a lot of opportunities, you know, even, even in different coming an editor or working, you know, at the, any number of our podcasts, or, I mean, there's just so many, you can have a whole lifetime, several different lifetimes worth of careers at this place. So I think um, that's one thing I feel very, very fortunate about. Well, we look forward to the future for uh, what you have left to write about, because I know there's a lot of great stories left to be told, and we look forward to seeing which ones you get assigned to. So thanks for taking your time today to talk about uh, the, the media business, past, present, and future, and we look forward to following you down the trail. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest on Campus Voices today, the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for international reporting from the New York Times and a proud University of Nebraska Journalism College graduate, Dion Searcy. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time on Campus Voices. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.